0: Right. I'm on. I'm on. Hey. Hi, everybody. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover today, as I feel like it's been the case with every single message in this series. So if everybody can join me in taking a deep breath, we're going to... All right, let's go. I'm going to start i want to start by asking a question specifically to the people who did not grow up in this country. Oh, hey, Sylvia. Sylvia's back. If you didn't know, Sylvia had uh, a fall recently, but she is back in church today. It's good to see you, Sylvia. Thanks. Glad you're here. Um, Already chasing rabbits. Here we go. I want to ask, if you did not grow up in this country— wherever you came from, when you came here, I'm willing to bet that there were things that did not make sense to you. But for those of us that did grow up here, we're just totally used to it. Just totally comfortable. Things just just make sense. And I wonder if you can think of that. Is there something in the culture around us that is totally strange to you, but would be totally normal to me? Can you think of anything? Just shout them out. Sweatpants walking around. Very, it's, I, I'm even, I see that. and I'm like, what? Okay, anybody, somebody else over here? Cash back. Interesting. Yeah. I have a couple things here that I was thinking through. Um, if my, oh, he's not working. Well, Rebecca can, uh, can help me out that there are a couple of things that I was thinking. One is the money. I think a lot of, can you just raise your hand if you come from a country where your money is different sizes and different colors? There's a lot, like, it seems like, and we now have a few different colors, but it used to just be that they were all the same size and all the same color, and to find the right bill, you had to pull out your whole thing and flip through to find the right one. The other thing is how we write our dates. I don't know if anybody gets frustrated by this, but, for some reason, we decided to do month, day, year, while just about everyone else in the world figured out that it makes way more sense to do day, month, year. And the last one, I don't know if this makes sense to anybody, but we decided that there should be 12 inches in a foot and 5,200 something f- feet in a mile, while everyone else seems like they figured out, let's just have, you know, 10 millimeters. That, we'll call that a centimeter, 100 centimeters, that's a meter, kilometer, you know. It just, coming here, I feel like there's a lot of things. It's just like, man, that doesn't really make sense. For temperature, Fahrenheit and Celsius. How many of you, like, checked your weather in the morning and you're like, oh, 30 degrees, I better wear shorts. And you go outside and you're like, it's actually freezing out here. Um, that's a good one, Yeah. So what th- that phenomenon of, of this, this distance between what you expect and what you experience, we call that, hopefully you can read my writing here, we call that cognitive dissonance. And that is essentially when your experience does not match your expectation. And this is important. Tation. Boom. Hopefully I spelled that right. This is important because the portion of scripture that we're looking at today speaks directly to this, to this phenomenon when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to our Christian faith. There are certain things that we experience that are, different from what we might expect. And we have a particular way of dealing with this cognitive dissonance, a natural way of doing it. And the portion of scripture that we talk about today gives us some helpful teaching and tools on how to resolve cognitive dissonance. So as we get into it, I just as a way of review, I want to remind us all that this series we've been in, the story of scripture, we've been saying all along that the Bible, this whole thing, it's 66 books. It's almost uh, 1,200 chapters, but it tells one big story from Genesis to Revelation, from cover to cover. It's one story, and that story is that God is with us so that we can be with Him. The story of Scripture is God with us so that we can be with Him. And over time, as we've been looking throughout these past weeks, that witness of God has taken a few different forms. And we call them covenants, and now we're in this place called the New Covenant that Jesus established when He was here in the, in, on the earth. And so as we get into the this book, these are actually the, the biggest collection of books that we've had in our series. If you remember our clap song, we've been talking about how the Bible is organized. We've said 512, 5512, 41211 1. The top row are the books of the Old Testament, and the bottom row are the books of the New Testament. And they're organized in these numbers, the first five books, the second 12 books, and onwards, by genre. They're collected by genre, not necessarily chronologically, although roughly it's chronologically. They're collected by genre, and we're talking about the 21 books in the New Testament known as the epistles, or as normal people call them, the letters. These are a collection of letters written by about six different authors—one of them, we don't really know who wrote it—to Christians in the, the first century world. So if you were to go after the book of Acts in your Bible, there's a whole bunch of short little letters that stop right before Revelation. The one at the end is Revelation. We're going to talk about that next week. And all of these letters, they're written over about a 50-year time period— between like A.D. 40 and A.D. 90, two Christians about this. And what we will see is that the letters, every letter in the New Testament is a, has sort of two ingredients. It's a combination of two things. And we um, will see the first one is ortho—oh, geez ortho, oh gosh, <laughs> doxy, uh, oh here it is, orthodoxy is, if you could split it up into, <laughs> that lid does not want to stay, two parts, ortho, does anybody know what that means? Anybody ever been to the orthodontist? bring you back some traumatic memories of braces for some people. Ortho is a root word that basically means straight. You go to the orthodontist to straighten out your teeth. Doxy is a root word that basically means your your beliefs or your opinions. And so when we talk about orthodoxy, we're talking about straightening out Our beliefs. We're talking about making sure that what we believe is actually right. In other words, it encompasses the whole truth of reality. And this is a key element of every single letter. One of the things that the writers of these New Testament letters are very concerned with is making sure that the people who are reading these have a very clear picture of reality have a true understanding of who God is, of who they are. If you remember the questions that we talked about in the very first message in this series, the questions that Genesis talks about, who am I, where's my, uh, what's my purpose, where does pain come from, all of these sort of big questions about life, that's all orthodoxy. And I want to just take a look at an example just so we can see sort of what that looks like. And so this is from Ephesians chapter 2. The verses can be on the screen. If you want to turn there, you can. But we're going to go through. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And this one is written by Paul. And he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, pause there for a second. Paul is giving us a truth about reality. He's giving us a little piece of orthodoxy by saying, all of us at one point, every single one of us, was an enemy of God. We were by nature, it says, objects of his wrath. So God and us were enemies at one point in time. That's a truth about reality. But he goes on in verse 4, but he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order... That in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now pause there. What's he saying? He's saying, even though it was true that all of us were God's enemies, God, because of who he is, actually brought us from death to life. He brought us back. He, even, even though we were his enemies, he made a way for us to be with him. Kind of this whole story of scripture that we've been talking about. And he hammers the point home again in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is giving us some real good orthodoxy here. You are saved through your faith, not by whatever you can do. He drives that point home. In this letter, in pretty much all of the letters, this is a really big point that the letters want to get home. This is a truth about reality that we are saved because of faith, not because of what we do. And so the the epistles... And oftentimes, you'll find the orthodoxy is sort of split from the second ingredient, which we're going to talk about in a second. So if you were to open up to any given letter in the New Testament, chances are the first half of that letter is going to be orthodoxy. And so the first half of that letter is all the information, the truth about reality, and then there's a pivot point where we start to talk about the second ingredient of the letters, which is orthopraxy, which you might be able to guess is the right. Praxy is, kind of sounds like the word practice, and so we're talking about the right behaviors or um, actions. So all the letters in the New Testament are a combination of these two things, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is the set of behaviors that are based off of the truth about reality. So the authors will spend the first half, usually, of these letters telling you what's true about reality. And then they'll make this pivot and they'll say, because all of this is true, this is how we need to behave. This is how we need to act. This is what it means to live out the truth that we know about God in life and faith. And so oftentimes we'll find this pivot point on the word, therefore. So if you look in your your Bible and you're reading a letter, when you see the word, therefore, oftentimes it's a pivot point from this to this. And so let's look just in the same book of Ephesians, Just a couple chapters later, Paul makes a bit of a pivot to start talking about the right or straight behaviors that we should have. This is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. He says, "'Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry.' And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, must, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God forgave you. So if you remember what we read about in chapter 2, Paul says, all of us were enemies of God, but God, even though we were dead, made us alive with Christ. And so there's, a, there's this dead part of us, and now there's this alive part of us. And what he says when he hits the therefore, he says, because you are no longer that old dead self, you need to stop behaving like that old dead self and start behaving like the new self. Take off all of the rage and the envy and the slander, the, these bad things, and put on these new behaviors of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And so this is how most of the letters function. And it, sometimes it can be helpful to flip back to the start of the letters to see what is the truth that underlines a lot of the behaviors that these writers are telling Christians to, to, to have. And the, there's one letter that I think is uh, helpful for us to look at, because in the letter of 1 Corinthians, these two elements are sort of mixed together. It's it's probably the only letter that's like that, but you have the orthodoxy and then the orthopraxy right after it. And it can be helpful for us to see how they play a part in one another. So, this, um, I, I'm not going to read it, but this is all of 1 Corinthians 8. So, it's one chapter, it's 13 verses, and it's all about food sacrificed to idols. Apparently, this church, this church in Corinth, sent Paul a note and said, Paul, We got a question about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to behave with regard to food that's sacrificed to idols. They're in a city that has a lot of different temples and lots of different gods that are worshiped. And one of the things that they would do is they would sort of offer meat to that god in a a worship ritual, but then they wouldn't use it. So that meat would go to the market and would be sold way cheaper than meat that wasn't offered. And so the question is, can I save money and buy the meat that was already sacrificed to idols, or do I need to make sure that I eat meat that has it? And so Paul is talking about, uh, is addressing this question. And he sort of says, look, we all have knowledge. We know that God is the one God. There is only one God in heaven and on earth. He's the God who created you and he's the God who gives you life. So idols are nothing. Idols, a statue made of wood is a statue made of wood. And if you were to lay a piece of meat in front of it and bow down or say some sort of prayer, it's still just a piece of meat that was in front of a statue made of wood. We know this. This is our orthodoxy. There's only one God. And because of that, it's no big deal to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Because idols are nothing. It's, meat, it's the same meat as it was before. But he makes a caveat. He says, if somebody doesn't have this knowledge, if somebody doesn't have this piece of reality, and they see you do this, you could really do some damage in their faith. It could really cause some harm. And he says at the end, therefore, if what I is, there's another therefore. So we're looking at orthodoxy. Therefore, if... What I eat causes my brother to fall into sin. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Paul says, I would rather be a vegetarian than to hurt or harm the faith of my brother or sister in Christ. And so we have another sort of underlying orthodoxy there that there's a a strong value in the community of believers. That we don't want to do harm to our fellow believer. And so these are how the letters are structured. And I said before that they address this experience, cognitive dissonance. The writers really want to make a way for us to deal with when our experience as a Christian does not line up with our expectation as a Christian. And this happens, that we will, you know, go through a season in life or something will happen and we'll say, I thought, I thought God was this way. I thought this was true about life. I thought this was true about being a Christian. What's what's going on? That's cognitive dissonance. And the thing is, our natural tendency when it comes to cognitive dissonance, our natural tendency to resolve this problem is to change our beliefs to match our behavior. So if our orthodoxy is our beliefs and our orthopraxy is our behavior, when there's an, when they don't line up, something has to give for our brains to just sort of be able to function. And oftentimes, our natural inclination is to choose to keep this and to change this. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, my family and I went on a trip, a vacation in the winter to our grandparents' lake house up in New Hampshire. If there's any skiers here, we're right next to Cannon Mountain. You can see it in the distance. It's very pretty. And we, we, my grandparents have this house on a lake up there, and we would love as kids to play out on the ice. We would clear snow away, put our skates on, play a little pond hockey, or just mess around. And this particular trip, I remember, I was probably 12, maybe, yeah, 12, 13 years old. All the drive up, all the drive up, my parents are saying, do not go on the ice. It is not thick enough. It is, cannot hold your weight. It's very dangerous. Do not go on the ice. It is not safe. They were giving me some right beliefs, All me and my brothers. I have three younger brothers. And me being the, um, I don't know, I guess disobedient son that I am, decided to go out. We were playing outside one of these days and I went out to the end of the dock that goes from the shore. And I did one of those things where you sit on the dock and my feet were on the ice, and I would just put a little weight on the ice, and then back. And maybe a little more weight on the ice, and then back, and I would sit down. And I got to the point where I could—I stood on the ice for a second without any extra help from the dock, and I sat back down, I said, oh my goodness, the ice, it held my weight. It's thick enough. It, it works. And so I call my brothers, who are being good sons and playing in the front yard, making snow forts or whatever, and I'm like, guys, the ice is thick enough, we can play on the ice. And somehow my younger brother, Derek— uh, finds his way out a little bit beyond the ice, just like I did, and he goes through. And at the end of the dock, it's, it's probably two and a half feet of water. He's not gonna drown. But he went up to his chest, and his boots are filling with freezing cold water, his pants are filling with freezing cold water, his jacket is starting to, and he's becoming heavier and heavier, and sort of impossible to pull out. And I can see the look on his face. He thinks he could die. He thinks that this could be the last experience that he ever has and what happened in that he's fine he got he got out let me just say that he dried off he warmed up he was okay but we all learned a valuable lesson because i had been given an orthodoxy but i had this experience this experience this behavior that did not match the orthodoxy that i was given i i tested the ice i thought to myself hey My behavior tells me the ice is thick enough. So my natural inclination in my mind was to change my beliefs about the ice to match my behavior. And that led to a pretty disastrous result. My brother Derek is traumatized by ice and falling through in the the pond. And this happens in life, but this also happens in faith. When we allow our behaviors to change our beliefs about God and about faith, we run into disastrous results. And I want to, I'll show a quick example of where this takes place. This is in Galatians 3. I know we're jumping all over the place here uh, with these letters, and they are, they're so, so full and uh, just slam-packed with amazing wisdom for following God. So I would highly encourage you, if you're not regularly reading scripture, to get into the letters. Read some of these letters. They're, they're quick, and you can really um, get a lot out of them. But this is Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Paul is addressing this, this dynamic. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you had heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So Paul is saying, you clearly heard that Jesus was crucified and that you are saved through faith. You clearly heard it, but somehow somebody got in in your ear whispering to you a message or maybe you just, anybody here grow up in a house where Achievement was celebrated and working hard was celebrated. And so we sort of internalize this message. Hey, if I, if I work really hard, if I get great results, if I bring home an awesome report card, I'm going to get love and affirmation and encouragement from my, from my family, from the people I look up to. We take that behavior and we apply it to our faith. So we start to say, okay, this is how it works. If I work really hard for God, if I do my very best to always, you know, pray and read my Bible and do all of these things, then God is going to reward me. I'm going to get the love and affirmation that I wanted. Maybe even that if I do a good, enough good things, God will actually save me from my sins. Now we've crossed over. We've crossed over. We've changed our beliefs. We've become unorthodox because of our behaviors. And Paul is saying, you, he's calling them out. He's like, you guys are knuckleheads, don't do this. You clearly saw this. And so what the letters continually do when it comes to cognitive dissonance in our faith is they, they challenge us to instead go back to what we know is true. When you experience this, a gap between your experience and your expectation, you're, you're going to be tempted to change your expectation. But what the writers tell us, don't, don't succumb to that temptation. Go back, go back, go back, go back to what you know is true. And over and over, Paul, one of Paul's favorite phrases is, it's, it's not troublesome for me to tell you this again. I will continue to remind you. Paul is always reminding the people of what's true because of this temptation that we feel in the end, the question is, why? Why is it important for us to allow our orthodoxy to influence and determine our orthopraxy? Why? And I went through, I actually, in preparation for this message, I looked at all the letters, and I'm thinking, what what are the writers setting up as the goal? What are the writers setting up as the finish line for all of this? Why is this so important? And they the writers use a lot of different metaphors, a lot of different pictures to try and get the idea across. But really what it comes down to is that getting these things right gets us to human flourishing, which is basically what it means to be with God. Over and over, the writers are saying, this is what we're aiming for. This is what we're shooting for. We are in this covenant relationship with God where we get to be with Him. We get to have this close personal relationship with Him. Do you want to know what that looks like? Get this right, and you will find out. They use all kinds of pictures and metaphors. They talk about like a baby growing up into an adult, sort of maturing, We've talked about like uh, uh, taking off dirty clothes. Maybe after, maybe you've had this experience where you're worked out and you're covered in dirt, you're, you're really sweaty and you, you take off your clothes, you get clean, you put on those fresh clothes and it's just like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how life is supposed to be. They use metaphors like uh, an athlete or a, tr- or a runner training and winning a race and saying that feeling of satisfaction, of fulfillment you get when you cross that finish line, that's kind of what it's like. To be with God. That's kind of what it's like to to experience human flourishing the way that God intended us to be. Or sometimes it's talked about, like, stepping from the darkness into the light. If you've ever been trying to, like, look around and find something, and you're having such a hard time, but as soon as you turn the light on, you're like, oh, uh, duh, there it is, right there. Or even planting seeds and harvesting a crop. All of these are just pictures of human flourishing. And over and over again, the, the writers of these epistles say, essentially, I want you to be with God. I want you to experience all the fullness of the, the intention of your design. You were created for this. You were designed and put together meticulously, knit together, so that you could be with God. And The way to get there, you pave the road by having the right beliefs, by straightening out your beliefs, and always, always, always allowing those beliefs to shape your behaviors. And as—I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as we close, I want to just talk about how— Something that we do, we do uh, that we take communion once a month, usually on the first Sunday of every month. And every time we take communion, is an awesome opportunity to do a self checkup on all of this, to check how you are mm-hmm. doing on the road to human flourishing. In First Corinthians. 11, Paul says something about communion that's very interesting and I want you to, to read this with me. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, it says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself or herself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying this, every time we come to one of these, it's a reminder of this whole dynamic. We, we reaffirm to ourselves Every time we take communion, what we believe is true about God and about reality. The foundation of the gospel is that Jesus bled and died for our sin, for our sake. And by taking that and holding our behaviors up to that light and to say, does this behavior match with that? When Paul talks about taking it in a manner unworthy of the communion. If you look at the verses beforehand, he's talking about how how people are going about it. Some people are getting too much and some people are not getting enough. Their behaviors are out of whack. And so when we come to this, and and if you don't do this already, this might be a great practice for you to do every time you take a communion, uh, the communion elements, is to just take a couple moments to ask yourself, where's my orthodoxy off. Where are the gaps in my understanding of God's truth? What questions do I have? What am I fuzzy and foggy on? And then also to ask yourself, where is my behavior out of line? All of us are on this road towards human flourishing. All of us have places in our life where our behavior is not in line with our beliefs. And the process of maturing, the process of a baby becoming an adult, or or, our seeds becoming crops, is this process of bringing our behavior in line with our beliefs. And so what, here's what we're going to do. If, if you don't have um, any of these elements, you can put your hand up. Somebody's going to be through here to give them to you. But I'm going to pray, and then we will take the bread together. That, you can open up that one side that has the little cracker there. And then we'll have a few moments to just reflect. And I want you to look at that first question. Reflect on that first question just in your own life, what are the questions that you have? What are the things that you're like, man, I don't really have a good answer to this. Don't have to make judgments on, on you know, what, about that, but just, just notice those things. And then I will pray for the cup, and we'll take that together. And then I want you to reflect on the second question. Where is my behavior out of line with God's truth? After that, I'm going to close in prayer, and I would encourage you at that time to also pray. Pray for yourself, and you can use those words if you want. You can use whatever words come to mind, but use that as an opportunity to examine yourself and to, to do what these New Testament writers constantly encourage us to do, to go back to what's true and to bring our behaviors and our expectations in line with that. After that, the worship team will close us in worship. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this constant reminder of who you are and what you've done for us. For the truth, the orthodoxy of our faith, that Jesus, you being fully God, being fully man, came to earth to die on a cross for the redemption, for the forgiveness of our sins. And that by only by putting our faith in you, not by working hard, not by doing good Christian things, but by putting our faith in you, you offer us redemption, you offer us healing, salvation, and transformation. As we take this bread together, Lord, I pray that you would, in your compassion and your love, reveal the places in our hearts and in our minds that are out of line with reality. Help us to see where your truth is lacking in our hearts so that we might grow in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the bread together and reflect on that question. thank you for the cup, the, 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 the fruit of the vine that represents the new covenant in your blood, that the, the old ways are gone, the, the old system of being with you is gone, but there is a new way to be with you. There is a new covenant to participate in because of the blood that you shed on the cross for us. Lord, I pray for all of us in the places in our lives where we are, we are out of step with your truth, where our behaviors have not come under the authority of who you are. Lord, I pray uh, that you would, in your mercy, you would reveal those things to us so that we can grow, so that we can experience more of the witness. Uh, of being with you that we can experience more of the flourishing that th- this intention behind our creation and in our design so i pray in this time that you would speak to us and that you would reveal those things to us pray this in jesus name I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would help us. Just like Paul says in Galatians, that something that we start in the spirit would finish in the spirit. That we don't experience human flourishing just by our efforts, by gritting our teeth and trying really hard. But through your spirit, through your power, as you direct us and show us those places in our life where things are not quite right, that we would actually go back to your truth and go back to the Holy Spirit that you've given to us for the power and the ability to actually make that change. Lord, help us to continue on this journey, to continue in this new covenant with you in this relationship. Help us draw closer and closer to you through the power of the Holy Spirit And Lord, when we come to points of dissonance and we might be tempted to change our beliefs, would you bring us back? Would you bring us back to the letters so that we can have orthodoxy and orthopraxy to experience all that you have for us in life? We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.